Father God, as we look at your word this morning, Father God, we pray for open hearts, Lord, open minds, open lives. Lord, we just simply ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you'd challenge us, um, that, Lord, you'd, you'd rebuke us, Lord, where we need to be, that you'd bring us back into line with your will and your grace. That, Father God, for those of us that feel far off this morning, feel broken, feel hurt, that, Lord, we would be reminded of that great love of yours. But, Lord, for those of us that perhaps are half-hearted this morning or lukewarm, that, Lord, you'd just bring us back, Lord, challenge us, to make, that we would make you number one again. You, know, you are a great big God, as the kids' song goes. Uh, may we be reminded of that again this morning. Lord, a great God who is greatly able to share his love with us. But Lord, just be with us now, and we pray these words will be honouring to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a very special weekend, uh, not just because of the solid weekend as a back, um, but because it is 50 years ago-ish, I suppose this time 50 years ago, they were probably somewhere in the Atlantic. Um, but 50 years ago, these last few days, um, humanity did something very unusual, very unexpected. They landed on the moon. There's a, a picture somewhere of the moon landings. And uh, is that right? Yeah. There we are. Oh, that's the other side of the moon. It's darker around that side, isn't it? Sorry. Oh, there we are. Let's see that. Um, that obviously proves it's fake because this was taken before the other guy got down. Um, never mind. Okay, so there we are. So that's, uh, I guess that's um, Neil Armstrong. I think he's in the air, actually. I think he's sort of floating a bit. Um, so there were 50 years ago, um, they landed on the moon. And it was a, a quite an amazing few days, wasn't it, for the human race, uh, particularly the Americans, although there were many, many people involved. Um, on the 16th of July, 1969, uh, they set off from this planet what would be the most incredible uh, feat of space exploration ever, I think. And on the 20th of July, yesterday, they landed on the moon's lunar surface. And uh, Neil Armstrong did what no one had ever done before, uh, and precious few have done since, which take the very first step of a human being on the surface of the moon. A moon which is a quarter of a million miles away from here. So they travelled the longest anyone's ever travelled, and they walked where no one had ever walked before. Uh, it was the most amazing of things. Uh, they sat upon uh, humanity's most powerful mode of transport ever, a Saturn V rocket, which is still our biggest, most powerful rocket ever created. And they have blasted off into space, and, uh, and they came home by going back into the Earth's orbit, kind of going around a few times, and then pinging back to Earth in a controlled crash, which is the only way you can put it. But the greatest thing about the moon landings, and you won't have realized this, is it spurned, spawned, spawned one of the great lines by one of the second greatest musical combos the world's ever seen. Jazz and Dave. When they announced during Wallop, um, they goes and builds a rocket ship and three blokes are shoved inside of it. And they counted down, the fuse was lit, and they said, they sent it up and said, best of luck, lunatics. And only three of us have listened to that song. You should download The Greatest Hits. It will affirm your life. Anyway, so the moon represents for us, the moon landings, uh, as they've been going over the last few days. I don't know if you've been watching the coverage. There's lots of it. You can even watch a film called The First Man. And it's being billed as humanity's greatest achievement. And it's not hard to see why people see that. As people look at the moon, they think back 50 years ago, they, they think a variety of things. They think, well, it's humanity's greatest achievement, the pinnacle of what we can do. For a lot of people, the moon landings and space exploration represent just how much we can achieve if we have enough time and enough uh, opportunity. And you look at uh, what Elon Musk and SpaceX and others are doing, trying to make space affordable and reusable and how he does that thing with those things that land is incredible every time I see it I think how does that not work how does that not fall over 
Uh, I did the bottle flip challenge a few years ago, and I was quite good at that. How you land a rocket, I don't know. But it spawned a whole new generation of people that want to do these amazing things, these big feats. For a lot of people, they look up and it represents the height of human skill. It took all of our ingenuity, all of our might, all of our determination to land those three or two men on the moon and three men in orbits in total. However, for a lot of people, the moon landings 50 years ago represent something else. It represents that we've outgrown the need for God. That we've outgrown the need for a deity, this ancient weird belief that there's a God out there. For a lot of people, when they think of all of that kind of thing, a lot of people say, well, it shows that we can do anything and we don't need God anymore. You'll note how little God is mentioned when we blast our rockets into the big black beyond. Yuri Gagurin, the first man in space, the Russian cosmonaut, is reported to have said, although he didn't actually say it, he, said, uh, he claimed that they, he said this, I looked and looked, but I didn't see God. He didn't actually say that. An atheist said that later about his space flights. For a lot of people, that sentiment returns, isn't it? We can get off the, we can uh, create great drugs, we can go to the bottom of the sea, we can go into space. What do we need God for? We've outgrown this primitive need of a deity, surely. That's what a lot of people think. And so this morning I thought it would be good to look at what the Bible says about the moon. There's a talk you never thought you'd hear. There's a sentence I never thought I'd say. There we are. But what does the Bible say about our universe and the stars and space and the moon which sits above us all day long, all year long, all the time? Because actually the moon, biblically, doesn't represent that we no longer need God. doesn't represent our ingenuity or our creativity. Biblically, the moon and the stars and the sun and space represent something very, very different. And I just want to share a couple of things with you this morning. We've already had Psalm 19 that just appeared on the screen as we worshipped. But Psalm 19 reminds us that the moon tells us that there's a creator God. Psalm 19 verses 1 to 4 said, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. For the Bible, the moon and the sun and our universe is a perpetual reminder that there is a God who exists and who is the creator of all things. Do you know, if we didn't have the moon, the world would be very different. If we didn't have the moon, um, it would be darker for a start, especially at night time, which sounds a weird thing to say because it's quite dark already. But if you took the moon out, it would be pitch black, uh, pretty much. And without the moon, um, our tides that are rush across the, uh, the world would be much smaller, much shallower, much softer, and they would have their own effect. Actually, days would get shorter. That's probably a good thing if you've got work tomorrow. But apparently there's something called tidal friction. Sort of slash science lesson this morning. But as the earth spins around and the waves kind of do that, and the oceans do this, that's, that's what they do, all over the world, it has this effect of just slowing the earth down ever so slightly. You won't realise it. But if there was no tide, our world would just get faster and faster and faster over a fairly long time. So you wouldn't get any uh, shorter days this time next week. But the earth also wobbles apparently. I can't feel it. I don't know if you can. Um, but it wobbles ever so slightly our world. And the moon, actually, believe it or not, stops our earth over-wobbling. I sometimes over-wobble, but that's a different issue. But it uh, over-wobbles. If you think of an Olympic hammer thrower, 
who spins around like that, holding the hammer, holding it tight. It's a really heavy thing. But once they're spinning around, they can stay quite central, quite secure, because that weight and that spinning around effect, whatever it is the scientific term is, kind of holds them in place. It's only when they let go of it that they kind of wobble around like that. And the moon keeps us from wobbling. And actually, they reckon if we didn't have the moon, they reckon that the whole Earth would tip over every now and again like that. So sub-Saharan Africa could be the North Pole and be very cold and things like that. And so the moon's quite important. And actually, the reason I'm telling you that is because when you talk like that, and then when you begin to consider the universe around our moon, and how beautiful it is, and how big it is, and how it's so finely balanced and nothing seems to move out of place ever, it all begins to point us to a creator, rather than just some accidental universe that you're just lucky enough to be born in. I don't believe anything of the sort. It actually begins to seem like it was actually carefully designed. Because of course it was. Because we wouldn't be here if it wasn't. We wouldn't be here at all. It points to a creator who is outside of time and space, bigger than this entire universe, and one who sustains it and keeps it in place. Nothing moves where it shouldn't. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 3, the psalmist says this. I'll read from verse 1. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory in the heavens, as in up there. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place. And it goes on to say some more things what I'll say in a minute. But when the psalmist looked up, he recognized that God had just hung it all in place. And that it wasn't just that it was there, it was sustained, it was kept there. The earth keeps spinning the way it should, the moon goes round the way it should, the sun is where it should be because God made it and God sustains it. Every breath we took, take this morning is only possible because God sustains every element of our universe and our planet and then our bodies. Every breath we should breathe out in thanks to him because none of it would be possible if he would not sustained our universe day in God created it, he designed it, he is the one who made it from nothing, we believe as Christians. The universe then, according to the Bible, isn't a mark of our achievement. Actually, it's a reminder of God's achievement, if I can use that word. The moon is in the sky to point us and declare that there is a God who made it, a creator of it. The Bible never calls our earth, planet earth, never calls it nature or mother nature. I don't know if you ever realise that as you go through your Bible. It's never referred to as nature. The Bible always refers to planet Earth as creation. All of creation. Creation this, your creation, Lord. Because the whole world has been made and sustained by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Yet we in Western Europe particularly have removed creation from our scientific vocabulary. We say nature. And so the Earth has become this static, accidental ball which just happens to have some life on it. But actually, for Christians, when we look at the moon, we recognize that God is the creator of all. The moon in the Bible tells us that God is the creator. The moon in the Bible also reminds us that the world will end. This is where it gets very serious. Um, The Bible talks about a final day, a day at the end of history, the day of the Lord, when Jesus will return and judge the living and the dead to see who put their trust in him when they heard the gospel, when who gave their lives to him as their king. And actually, the color of our moon 
biblically is a prophetic sign as to what stage we're in and what's happening in terms of the end of all things. And uh, this deserves a much bigger talk, um, I'm sure. But Joel chapter 2, verse 30 to 32, we read this, the same verses we read when we looked at Pentecost a few weeks ago. He writes, well, God says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. And then flipping over to Luke chapter 21, verse 25 to 28. Jesus says of the end of all things, the end of history, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehensive as as to what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud in a cloud with a power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your head because your redemption is drawing near. And then one final one from the book of Revelation, right at the very back, towards the end. Um, Revelation 6, 12 to 14. John, a vision of the end of all things, says, I watched and he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth. The sun, oh, sorry, um, made of goat hair and the moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It goes on to say a bit more then. But this idea that there's a day coming when Christ will return, a bad day leading up to it, bad times leading up to it, and even in earth and space there will be signs in the heavens that will declare our moon will remind us that we're near the end, depending on when that end is. Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation, to mean what we can see and what's up there, groans for that final day, groans for the end when Jesus will come back and redemption will come for all of his people. And so our moon is a perpetual reminder of what day it is. So every time you look up and it's a nice white colour, you know today isn't the day Jesus is coming back. But it should remind you that it could be tomorrow or maybe a day after, or maybe a day after. Don't be fooled into thinking Jesus might not return for another million years. He could come back tomorrow. And so the question I must ask all of you in this room, given what I've just said, even if it makes no sense, is if Jesus came tomorrow and asked you if you put your faith in him, would you be ready to meet him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Are you ready? Have you made him your Lord and Saviour before he comes? Because there's no chance after. So the moon reminds us as a creator, reminds us where we are in history. The moon reminds us that God alone is to be worshipped. Let's go back to Psalm 19, um, which we had on the screen I read just a moment ago. It says that the heavens declare the glory of God. People have worshipped the sun and moon since the beginning of all time, haven't they? But the sun and moon and stars, they have a job. Their job isn't to be worshipped, but their job is to remind us that there's a creator and to remind us that that creator should be worshipped. In the book of Genesis, when the writer, probably Moses, uh, wrote the creation account, how God made the world out of nothing just by speaking, and God said. We see that over and over. In Genesis chapter 14 to 19, we read these words. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky 
to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light to the earth, to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. Has it ever struck you as slightly strange that when Moses writes the creation account, that when it's written down what God did, he doesn't say that God made the sun and the moon? That's strange. Why wouldn't you say terms that everyone would have used at that time? They're used later on in Deuteronomy 4, particularly. Why doesn't he say God made the sun and the moon to give light at night and daytime? Because ancient pagan religions at the time worshipped the sun as a god. They worshipped the moon as a god. And so when the writer of Genesis writes about creation, he's saying to everyone, don't worship the created, worship the creator. Won't worship what's given a name like sun or moon, but worship the one who is called I am who I am, Yahweh, the king of kings. Worship him. And as Israel would go into the promised land, God would say to them, when you get there, be careful that you don't make an idol out of wood and iron and stuff and worship that. Be careful that you don't worship the sun and moon. Worship the creator. The moon reminds us that there is a creator. Often people say the universe is so beautiful, but then they don't go any further. But how weird is it to worship what's been created, as wonderful as it is, but not worship the creator? Let me give you an example of how ridiculous it would be to worship the moon when you can worship the one who made it. Before me, when me and Andrea got together, I didn't know I'm telling this story, um, my finest moment of romance, um, it's not quite my famous, we did go to um, Florence that time, that was quite romantic. Anyway, it was quite early on in our relationship and I thought the way to, to, to woo a lady, isn't to say woo, um, is to make them a nice meal and, and as a man to make it without your mum's help. That's quite good as well. So I did it all on my own, independent of everybody. And, uh, and I got this recipe. And, uh, and it was uh, pork, some sort of pork thing, with a toast base. It was cut around the pork. I was very pleased with that. And then there was a red wine and tomato, tomato sauce over top and peas. And, uh, and I made this dessert. And it was a uh, chocolate mousse thing. And I tell you what, I've never had it since, but it remains the best thing I've ever eaten in my entire life. It really, it really is. Except beef wellington, which is, of course, the best thing to eat anyway. Anyway, the point I'm making is that I served this wonderful, life-affirming meal to Andrea, and she ate it, and I could see that she was a different woman at the end of it, in a good way. And so we sat there. But can you imagine how stupid and ridiculous it would be if we sat across a romantic table, having made this beautiful meal, wonderful as it was, the amount of time it took me to make it, and I, honestly, the little toasty bits under the pork, I can't stress enough, how I cut them with a knife, so they're just with the perfect match for the little bit of pork. I can't stress how long it took me and how perfectly I did it. Anyway, where was I? Yes. And so, can you imagine presenting that to Andrea and her being so taken with it that she doesn't bother talking to me the rest of the meal? She says, this is so wonderful and just completely ignores the one that made it. What a weird relationship we'd have. In fact, we'd have none at all. I'd have been, I'd have been losing her phone number that evening. And so... Yet, when it comes to this universe, we're so quick to marvel at its size, marvel at its beauty, marvel at its magnificence and its fine balance, even its fine tuning, even its design. Yet people will not say that there's a creator God behind it. Of course there is. Nothing comes from nothing. Something has to be caused, something has to be begun, something has to be created, and God is that creator. So many people are obsessed with the meal 
and they can add a chef. Um, I love that when they got to the moon, Buzz Aldrin did something truly wonderful, which I didn't know until yesterday. And it's just a few minutes of video I want to play you. But this is what Buzz Aldrin did when he got to the moon, humanity's greatest achievement. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10. The images and words are iconic. And for almost anyone alive during the 1960s, they spark indelible memories of what has been called the greatest achievement in human history. Man's first landing on the moon. 875 feet. Four forward, drift into the right level. 30 seconds. Forward, drift. Okay, engine stop. Houston, uh, tranquility base here. Yet while Apollo 11 remains a hallmark of our collective past, a significant event occurred on the mission that went unnoticed by the more than 600 million people who watched from Earth with breathless anticipation. On July 20th, 1969, astronaut Edwin Buzz Aldrin celebrated communion on the moon. thanks meant shifting his focus from the challenges of the journey to the power and grace of the God who had made it possible. And as Mission Control initiated a five-hour period of radio silence so the astronauts could rest before their first walk on the moon, he removed a packet from his spacesuit and arranged its contents. A silver chalice, a wafer, a small vial of wine, and a note card with a handwritten passage from the Gospel of John. Later, the pilot reflected on his decision to observe the Christian sacrament 240,000 miles from home. During the radio blackout, I prepared the bread and the wine. As I poured the wine into the chalice our church had given me, the one-sixth gravity of the moon caused the liquid to curl slowly and gracefully up the side of the cup. Then I read the scripture which I had chosen to indicate our trust in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever remains in me and I in him will bear much fruit, for you can do nothing without me. I remember the sound of the eagle's metal body creaking as I ate the wafer and swallowed the wine. I gave thanks for the intelligence and spirit that had brought two young pilots to the sea of tranquility. At the time, I could think of no better way to acknowledge this enormous achievement than by giving thanks to God. Then I offered a prayer for the task at hand and the opportunity I'd been given. The Apollo 11 mission was a...
Did you, did you know that? I didn't know that. That's news to me the other day. It was wonderful. And yet you, you uh, compare it with uh, Elon Musk. I like Elon Musk. But he just, uh, he's added a car to space. Whereas uh, Buzz Aldrin celebrated communion. The death of Christ's resurrection was celebrated on the moon. I think that's fantastic. So next time you walk even around, next time you see a hill that takes you or a mountain or a tornado or something like that, don't stop and marvel at it. Marvel at the one that created it. Simple point. My final one. The moon reminds us of something far greater than any of that. The moon reminds us that God loves us. Believe it or not, every time you look at the moon, you should see it not as a sphere, but almost like a heart. Because the moon reminds us of God's absolute love for every single one of us. I'm going to play you another video. I'm, no, I'm sorry, two in one talk. What are we doing? Um, but this is a guy called Louis Giglio. Apart from having the most ridiculous, wonderful name all at the same time, he's an American guy. He's a, a Christian. He's a, um, I think he's a church leader now. And he used to do a series of videos about science and where you can see the fingertips of God in science in space. And he does this video, it's just a few minutes long, and then I'll finish off with a final couple of thoughts. But he's just talking about the size of planet Earth. And in his talk, he likens the Earth to the size of a golf ball. And he says, if the, the Earth is the size of a golf ball, the sun is 15 feet across by comparison. And then he's just, uh, he's just mentioned the biggest star they'd found at that point. And he said the biggest star, by comparison to the golf ball, would be the size of Mount Everest compared to if the Earth was the size of a golf ball. And then he goes on to say you could fit um, seven quadrillion Earths into the biggest star they'd found at that point. But this uh, video uh, puts us in our place, first of all. You're on. Maybe this will help a little bit more. This absolutely blew my mind. Just a little journey through our solar system. Everyone knows our planets and sort of how we fit in to the story here. You see really quickly that we're not even the biggest deal in our own solar system, but as Earth comes by, you have to know tonight that we are living on a privileged planet. Anyone would tell you we're living at one of the most special places, if not the most special place in all of creation. But Neptune comes by and Saturn and then Jupiter and you're like, okay, we're not all that big, even in our own little cul-de-sac. I just noticed the blue dot fading away is not the Earth. That's Neptune. The Earth has gotten too small to see anymore. Sirius comes by. Little plug for satellite radio. Not the biggest star, but the brightest star that we have found so far. Pollux, which we didn't mention. Arcturus. Such a beautifully named one, Regal. But then the one that messed me up. star Musifi. Musifi's cousin W. Sifi. <laughs> and Canis Majoris. And 
And do you know that you couldn't come up here right now with a Sharpie and make a mark on the screen that would approximate the size of our sun? You couldn't even do it. I mean, when you look at these and their relative size, we just have to put a little arrow over there that says, if you could put the sun on here, which you can't, it would go somewhere about here. And um, can you hang on that for me? And when you see this, I don't know what happens to you, but I'll tell you what happens to me. A shrinking feeling comes over me, and it's not a bad shrinking feeling. It's a good shrinking feeling. Because sin, it has a, a way of shrinking God down in our minds and puffing us up in our own estimation. But just a glance into the universe that God has made resizes everything in a heartbeat. And you realize tonight we are worshiping an unrivaled, uncontested God of all kind of might and power and glory and awe who is, there's none like him anywhere in all of creation tonight. And the point is, every single one of us in this room is insignificant. We think we're significant and wonderful and all these, but actually every single one of us are tiny. We are insignificant if there is no God. If there is no God, and all of that is by some strange thing, accidental. The universe has happened to accidentally work with all of its gravitation and radiation, everything be finely balanced the way it is. If it's just an accident and there is no God, then you've only got to watch that once and feel pretty depressed because not one of us matter. It doesn't matter what you've been through, how much money you've got, how much success, what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter if you've murdered half the world. It's irrelevant. Because we're so tiny, if the world just went like that, who'd care? Wouldn't even know where to look for it if you were as big as Canis Majoris, if there is no God. But yet there is a God, as the moon tells us. Don't you agree every time we look at it, there's a creator and a God to be worshipped. And actually what's wonderful is that the God who made that biggest star... And actually the God that made the whole universe and who can hold it in the palm of his hand, the whole universe knows your name. He knows your name, Barry. He knows your name, Millie. He knows your name, Geraldine. He knows your name, Tim. He knows your name, David. He knows your name, Alistair. He knows my name. He knows our names. Yet he can hold the universe in the palm of his hand. That's your name as well, Sam. Psalm 8, verses 3 to 9. says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You've made them a little lower than the angels. And you've crowned them with glory and honor. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All flocks and herds and animals of the wild. The birds in the sky and the fish in the sea. All that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God knows not just your name, but every hair on your head. God knows not just every hair on your head. He knows every minute you've got left to live. God knows every thought you've ever thought before you even speak it out loud. God knew you before you were even conceived. But more than that, more wonderful than any of that, is that same God who can hold the universe in the palm of his hand through the second person of the Trinity became as insignificant as you and I. 
He came to that tiny little dot of a planet that is unique and wonderful in so many ways, created by him so we could see all of this to worship him. He became as insignificant as us, but he didn't stop there. Knowing our names, loving us unconditionally, he, Jesus, took every sin we'd ever committed and said to us, you need only do one thing, put your faith in me, and death and resurrection will be your destination. That we could be his children. How wonderful is that? And so the moon landings are awesome. I'm not sure we're ever going to do it again. It doesn't feel like it. They show the ingenuity that God has endowed us all with as human beings. Shows that we can do so much more when we work together and if we work hard. But by no means does our little flurry off the front doorstep of planet Earth declare that we no longer need God. Quite the opposite. Actually, in terms of distance, we haven't actually gone anywhere. But as we look up and celebrate 50 years of human achievement, we should remember that for all of our achievements in space, underneath all of that remains injustice, inequality, poverty and pride. And our hope isn't found in leaving this world. It's found by the one who created it and the one who sent his son Jesus, the one that can redeem it from itself. And so let's celebrate the moon landings. Let's look up and marvel at those two men and then the many that followed. But let's not forget to worship God in the process. Because if it wasn't for him, at least, there'd be no moon to land on. You pray. Father God, I just really want to pray that you would remind every person here, Father, that you know our names. That, Lord, you you knew us before we were born. And, and Lord, maybe even in this room, Lord, some of us aren't even sure what we even think, even if we believe in you at all. Yet, Lord, I know you love every single one of us so much that Jesus has already been crucified for them. Even if they don't accept it, Lord, there is a way and truth and life to be had through faith in Jesus. And, Lord, for some of us here that feel insignificant, even if we're your people, that feel broken, that feel rubbish, that feel awful about ourselves, Lord, remind us of that largest star, that's tiny in comparison to everything else you've made. And yet, Lord, the God that made it all knows their name and loves them and sent Jesus to die for them. And Lord, may we never, as human beings, trust in our own skill. May we trust in the skills you give us, but Lord, trusting in you, the one who gave them to us. May we use our skills, Lord, for, for the good of humanity, Father, for the glory of God. And Lord, may we see you and see your fingerprints in everything we pass. And may we give you praise and glory this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.